Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is Joshua, the world's mayor. We're so grateful to have you here today. We have an amazing broadcast on the Live Mana Network today, and you can find our app. <laughs> you can find our network by downloading our app on your phone, tablet, computer, or even your smart TV's app store. Or you can find us on Google News under the Live Mana Worldwide Foundation. Or, of course, just go to livemana.org. We are so grateful to have you here today. This is going to be a really, really interesting broadcast. Uh, we have Representative Steve Sandell here, and uh, we're going to talk about civil commitment. And in fact, I think we're going to have two separate phone calls also join us uh, from some of the gentlemen that we've become friends with <laughs> over the last year uh, in helping expose what's going on with civil commitment, the injustice that's going on. But What's special about Mr. Sandell is that not only being a representative uh, of the state and here in Minnesota, you know, he is somebody, I, it's, it's always nice to hear different uh, points of view or a different perspective. And so we've had family members on, we've had actual the actual prisoners or patients, patient prisoners, whatever you like to call them. We've had them on, and now we actually have somebody in the government. Uh, and it's going to be really, really nice to hear a different perspective, why he's involved and, you know, and really helping expose the truth about what's happening with civil commitment. So stay tuned. This is going to be this is going to be special. It's going to be interesting. And I've noticed that several we've had a lot of new people starting to watch these broadcasts and starting to go, OK, what's going on now? And so I want to thank you for that, because ultimately that's what we're trying to do is bring awareness uh, to the general public, because whether you believe it or not, whether you want to believe me or all the other people that have come on here, <laughs> this affects you, whether you're in a prison or not. This affects, if you think, well, I haven't done anything wrong, this affects you. This affects everybody. And that's why we're talking about it. So without further ado, and there's a million things that I would love to talk to Mr. Sandell about, this is just one of them. So hopefully we'll be blessed to have him back on. But without further ado, it is an absolute honor to have Mr. Steve Sandell from the, what is, it's the it's the House of Representatives in Minnesota, correct? That's correct. I represent uh, yeah. District uh, 53B, which is most of the suburb of Woodbury, Minnesota. About um, I have about uh, 60,000 people in my district, and um, it's been an enormous, I have to say, an enormous honor to uh, serve in the House and to represent the people in this uh, in this district. So, And Joshua, thanks very much for the opportunity. It's great to talk to the mayor of the world. This is, uh, <laughs> this is the best interview I've ever had. <laughs> and you're well, awfully good, by the way. Do I know? Hey, you're awfully good at it, by the way. Oh, thank you very much. I, you know, when we go to a one world government, I'm I'm planning on running for the official title of world's mayor. Oh, so, I, <laughs> I, and what, what that may, actually means a lot. I actually have a real politician telling me that. So thank you. It's just not even, like it's gone beyond a nickname now. So thank you. Um, hey, before we start, I, I we have a lot of questions before the phone starts ringing, but I asked this question. This is the only planned question, Mr. Sandell. What are you grateful for today and why? Well, a couple of things, I guess. One is I'm grateful that that um, we have a chance in this country to exchange ideas. That's really important. Second of all, I'm enormously grateful for um, um, the health and uh, welfare of my family. And um, I'm uh, grateful for uh, deep friendships that I've had for uh, ages. And it's... Um, and it's a real pleasure to have a chance to talk to you and your listeners, by the way. So that's it. Well, we're grateful to have you here. And uh, 
and especially to talk about this subject again i i was looking into some of the you know the work that you've done over the years in representing this great state of minnesota i'm new here uh, but I've really enjoyed living in this state, and and I have to think it has a lot to do with the leadership that's here. So I want to thank you very, very much. I'm not really politically inclined. I don't. I'm not part of either side. But what I do like about you, it's you seem to have your. Really, if I could choose a party for you, sir, I'd call it the common sense party. You seem to have a lot of common sense um, about your way of being, and I'm grateful for that. But what I want to ask you, because of all the things that you've taken on in your career why choose civil commitment like how did because i didn't see anything in your upbringing going to brown university i didn't see any of that going yeah he's going to help sex offenders like <laughs> I, I didn't see that anywhere so why well, well i you know i ran for uh, office for the first time in 2018 and um, civil commitment was not among the issues that i campaigned on i talked about uh, firearm safety i talked about education talked about environment and the climate and i thought and i talked about health care and those were really important issues i also talked about compromise and the chance for uh, republicans and democrats and people of other persuasions to get together and, and uh, chart a course. Um, we believe in something, we have, we have common interests. And I just thought that that had been um, overlooked by our, our partisanship. And I know that that's a familiar conversation these days, but it, uh, it, it's something which I felt strongly about. Uh, I did, you know, I uh, I served my first term on the department on uh, uh, committees on education and environment. Uh, my second term, beginning in in, in 2020, uh, I was assigned to the committee on human Re on human uh, services, and that's when I received a letter in the mail from a fellow at, um, at at Moose Lake, and I imagine he sent the same letter to all members of our human services committee, and he introduced himself and he told me about uh, MSOP, the Minnesota Sexual Offenders Program. At first, I thought, well, this is an issue of civil rights, and I'm certainly interested in civil rights. These individuals apparently have been um, uh, sentenced and have served their uh, their time at the Department of Corrections, and here they are in uh, in this uh, situation of indeterminate uh, length. And so I looked into it a little bit further and, and uh, responded to the fellow's letter and got two or three uh, additional letters. And I thought, this isn't just a, an issue of, of civil rights. It's a real issue of human rights. Um, we're talking about individuals who have been victims, and uh, I have, uh, you know, I have no tolerance for sexual assault and sexual aggression, uh, and I am very serious and, and, and supportive of, of individuals who have been victims. But the the correspondence I received talked about the uh, um, the efforts that the state, I guess, it is is uh, pursuing to. Um, um, treat individuals, or they say, or we say treat individuals, and, and try to find a way to, to re-entry into the community. And that's uh, when I began to find out a lot more details about the program and um, began to talk with the people that, that you've spoken with before and uh, who have a, a deep sense of um, commitment to this program. And it, it's inspired in me um, more research. And eventually, I, I wrote a bill to uh, uh, reform the Minnesota uh, Sexual Offenders uh, uh, Program. Um, but as you know, uh, talking about sexual offense in, in the legislature is very tough. Yeah, I would imagine that, first of all, it's not a, you know, we can talk about violence all day long and it can just roll off the tongue. But the minute we try to say the word sex, it's like everybody will stumble. And then, of course, you go from there because it's that subject that makes everybody feel a little bit different when they talk about it, even if it's like something nice about sex. It, it has... A tendency to kind of make people tense up a little bit 
Uh, it, it, it's, it's such a fascinating subject, but the most troubling thing to me that, that I've noticed in this is that we're giving the field of psychiatry the ability to make laws in a way and make yeah. rules and giving yeah. them absolute authority to say, yeah, you're going to commit another crime, so you need to go to MSOP or one of the other facilities in the country, and you need to go, and you're going to rot away there. Yeah. I, that, to me, knowing what I know about psychiatry, and I won't go down the history of psychiatry right now, but what I know from my own experience, which was being misdiagnosed. I know what that, I was misdiagnosed by six psychiatrists. Each one gave me a buttload of medication. Each one made me worse than I already was. So how can this, and, and what I know about psychiatry is, depending on where you went to school, who educated you, and where you, you, you studied, more or less, that will affect your, the way that you view certain illnesses. Yeah. So now we're giving absolute authority to that? Come on, something's not right with that. Well, I taught school for a long while, and um, I taught in, in communities that were really, um, uh, where children had very tough lives. And I taught in communities that were affluent and where kids uh, came from privileged households. And the, the fundamental um, takeaway, I guess, from that is that uh, young men and women did well if, um, if they felt secure, if they were confident of their well-being, and their health was supported. And they, and they did well when they had aspirations. That doesn't mean that all poor kids have, uh, uh, have a, a, a limited future or all uh, kids of privilege uh, have, have easy going. That's not true. But those two things, health and well-being, and our aspirations, our belief that, that something is going to – that there's going to be a, a positive consequence to our, our effort and responsibility, those are really important things. And – and one of the things that re that I responded to uh, uh, relating to the fellows at uh, uh, men and women at, at uh, MSOP is that, um, uh, first of all, their mental health was not being taken care of. Their physical health was, uh, 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 I, I don't think, uh, was was being valued either. And certainly, uh, based on the, the history at MSOP, there is there is no encouragement of one's aspirations. Uh, an indeterminate sentence uh, without a uh, the possibility of making um, evident progress toward a goal. I'm sure there are individuals at, at, at uh, Moose Lake and, and at the other facility in St. Peter who, given the opportunity, would say, I think I need a, a residential uh, circumstance here. I, I need the treatment. I need the therapy um, to grow, uh, to heal. And I'm sure that there are individuals there who are dangerous, dangerous to themselves and dangerous to others and, and, and should be um, um, should continue their detention for public safety and public health reasons. But the vast majority, and, I, and as I say, I, 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 I don't dismiss or discount the seriousness of sexual crimes, but the vast majority of those individuals want to, want to heal. They, they want to return to their families. They want to be uh, um, contributing members of society. And uh, they don't like about themselves the, the, uh, the mistakes that they've made and, uh, and the way that they're, they're treated. Um, as I looked into the, the, the program, I, I, I realized that MSOP the, uh, had been established by legislation uh, uh, sponsored by a fellow from uh, Rochester, Minnesota, a guy named Dave Senjima, a Republican, about 1995, I believe. And the idea was that this program would, would, would treat, would provide therapy in a hospital-like setting for individuals who were uh, convicted of a crime and, and the courts believed were continued to be dangerous after their, their time in corrections.
But since but since then, uh, the program has grown. We're at more than 750 people now. Um, we're spending $100 million a year. And I'm not just counting numbers and saying, no, these numbers are so high. I'm counting human capital. Um, the men and women who are there could be uh, independent and, and valuable citizens. And, and uh, uh, you know, if, if, if there are some legislators who uh, take a look at, at the uh, expenditures side of the, the, the budget and say, oh, you know, we're, we're spending a lot of money there. What is the tolerance of the, of the taxpayers to a program which seems to be growing without, without um, um, results? Right. Well, I'm going to ask you something. Why isn't it considered? So I, I've gotten to know several different uh, people that have been that are either still locked up or now have gotten out. Yeah. One of the gentlemen that I know, I, I mean, I've looked at his I, I've seen the evidence that he has. and I hope he gets the money to fight this case because he was wrongly convicted. He was wrongly there. Should have never been in prison to begin with. And his case is relatively famous in Minnesota, uh, Tom Evanston. But I've gotten to know him quite well. And one of the suggestions, I saw the letter he wrote to the governor. This is before I lived here. Uh, and I forget which one it was. But I saw the letter he wrote to him about a particular case saying, "You give, give this guy, if you're going to release him, give a GPS monitor to track his whereabouts. Sure. And this is the guy that was let out. And he told them that he was going to commit a crime. He goes, I'm not ready to be released yet. What do you mean? It's time to go. I'm not ready to be released yet. And they go, well, if you don't leave, you're going to be here for the rest of your life. Okay, I'm okay now. And now I'm going to leave. And then he went and raped and murdered a little girl. Yeah. Well, Tom had sent this letter. I've seen the letter. And of course, then later after the fact, then that governor says, oh, now he recommends the GPS monitors. So that said, now that we've got that in the conversation, why these people that are high risk but haven't committed crimes in however long that got swooped up in this program, doesn't it make more financial sense uh, just to put a GPS monitor on them and track them that way? Is, isn't that more cost effective? One of the things I, I mentioned to the uh, uh, Commissioner of Human Services, and I had a, I had a uh, a lovely conversation with her early in the summer, and I thought that it was very positive, would lead to some uh, uh, further discussion. But I said, look, at what what is it that uh, uh, keeps us from, from um, looking for success? Um, we aren't talking to other states. We aren't talking to other countries about uh, where they've found success. We need to invest in, in, uh, in research and, and find out what is, what's going to work. Prevention is, is where we ought to be, uh, is our first question. Support is our second question, not only of the victims, but of their families. And I have to say support for the, the individuals uh, who have committed uh, crimes and assault and their families. These are painful. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, there are 134 people in the House of Representatives, and uh, what is it, 65, I guess, in the uh, in the Senate, 67 in the Senate. Um, and and we can't have a conversation like this, Joshua, uh, on the floor of the House of Representatives, and we can't even have a conversation like this in, in a committee. The, the honest and candid conversation and discussion about these, I understand these are sensitive issues, but. Um, you know, I'll talk to people and say, one of my concerns is a civil commitment program, sexual offenders. And immediately I get people sort of standing back and saying, you know, sexual offenders, what are you doing? And, and, and there are mis 
there are misconceptions about individuals who want treatment and therapy and want to grow and, and, and reform. And um, I, among my, my, my disappointments at the house is that these issues just can't be, <laughs> can't be discussed. I, uh, you know, all of us have gone to the, the public and say, we want your um, confidence in us. To right. go to the state, the state capital, and and discuss things which should, which all of us are, are concerned about. One of which is public safety and public health, and yet we get there, and uh, all we're willing to do is is throw arrows at each other when we when we talk about the issue which which might be politically sensitive. So I uh, and that's and that's why it's, it, this kind of broadcast is so essential. Uh, I'm not sure how many people will be listening to us a hundred, a thousand, maybe a million, um, but if if uh, in those people's minds they, they say, "Well, what's going on here?" Only twenty state, only twenty states have have uh, programs of civil commitment, and the and the and the uh, uh, the incidence of sexual assault is no um, uh, less in those states than, than the states that don't have civil commitment. Why? Um, why would anyone even want to run for office? Because essentially, what you're saying is nothing gets done. Right? <laughs> like, it. it, it which I think has become kind of obvious, and I'm not going to get into the, you know, giving my opinions about what I about anything right now. I'm keeping my opinions to myself. But this one, like, that's got to be disheartening for you because I believe with all my heart, like everything I've read about you that's publicly available, everything I've read, I'm like, this guy is there to serve. He genuinely cares about his community. He genuinely wants to make a difference. Why in the heck would you be there if you can't get anything done? It almost seems like if you're a private citizen, you can get more done than the actual government. Actually, Joshua, I, I uh, uh, just wrote a note to a uh, friend the other day saying the, the same thing. Uh, um, in, uh, I'm very interested in water policy and, and environmental stewardship. And uh, I wrote and said, I, you know, I've tried to introduce these bills which deal with water and, and the environmental review and, and got nowhere. And maybe uh, as a private citizen, without uh, uh, without the influence of our own caucus and the Republican caucus, maybe as a private citizen, I can go directly to the local government, the city, and, and, uh, and adjoining cities uh, to work on this and, and make the decision easier. Whenever people say, oh, you know, that, that, that issue is too tough, that issue is too tough, um, I worked at the university for a long while and, and uh, uh, did some work on, on um, the history of the Democratic Party post-World War II. And Hubert Humphrey was part of that. And, and um, uh, I know this sounds like ancient history, <laughs> but in, 19, in, 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 the, in the early 60s, of course, there were people like Martin Luther King and many more in, in the issues of states' rights, local people as well as individuals who had a national reputation. But Humphrey was in the, was in the Senate and... Um, after Kennedy's assassination, uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, uh, asked Humphrey to work on this issue of uh, a states' rights bill, or rather a, a civil rights bill. And and Humphrey and uh, a Republican, Ev Dirksen from Illinois, a conservative Republican, worked together daily um, on an issue which provided the civil rights of 1964, which was eventually passed in July 1964. Now, that bill um, wasn't just about... Uh, um, uh, firearm safety. It wasn't just about uh, uh, spending a little bit more money on, on, on uh, school-based health health services. It, it affected the culture of this country. And a year later, the voting rights bill was passed. Now, what could be bigger than civil rights and voting rights? 
we should be able to, to use that example and say, as citizens, we can do this. Um, it takes some patience. It, it, it takes a little bit of courage. But I believe that that I believe that citizens do want a legislature that will that will respond to them. I, um, and I'm you know I'm not the only. <laughs> I, I taught next door to a fellow who, uh, uh, my last couple of years teaching, who, who said, "You know, you're just too di- <laughs> you're just too idealistic and naive." <laughs> and and he said, <laughs> and I said, "Well, maybe maybe that's the case. Maybe I should run for office." <laughs> but I, uh, I I guess you know I when I talk to a, a, a friend, sometimes I said, "You know, I I don't want to be negative about this." I've chosen not to continue to, to work in the in the legislature because I've, I've been frustrated and haven't been very good at getting things done. But um, I, I want to believe that this uh, democracy, and we're talking a lot about this, the, the health of our democracy. I want to believe that this democracy has a uh, has a soft spot, and that <clears throat> and um, uh, we're going to be able to find it. This issue of civil commitment, I mean, everything about it, Joshua, is is. Uh, uh, Cries for conversation and discussion. There, there are Phil. Um, one of my friends up, up up at Moose Lake has told me. Uh, I think he said, fifty or ninety people are are in this program who have not been convicted of a crime. Um, uh, the court has has uh, uh, recognized that they've been accused of a crime, but um, that that crime has not been adjudicated in the in the court. So that just is beyond me. Yeah, and it, you brought up water, which made me want to talk about plastic pollution and water yeah. rights. And I, I, I have we, we have to talk about that another time because I have a lot to say about that. And and I'm with you, and I support you uh, with your efforts because, well, anyway, I don't want to go there. But let's talk. About, let's go back to civil commitment and the the prop the the care. So I worked with complex disabilities for 18 years before I started in media and entertainment. And I loved fighting uh, on behalf of patients with complex disabilities. Loved it. Loved taking on insurance companies. Loved getting laws passed on behalf of patients, taking on the Oklahoma Medicaid. And I, I enjoyed that life. And I loved fighting on behalf of people that really didn't know how to fight for themselves. But one thing that, that about those with complex disabilities, for the most part, they get the proper care that they need. There's, it's accessible for the mental health care side, occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy, and on and on and on. They have all that there. Then you have the HIV community, which I'm somebody with HIV. I, there's tons of resources for us. It is, there is no excuse for anyone living with HIV to not have medication all because Minnesota has been a, is a great state. Uh, they take care of people with their health care, especially if you don't have the money to do it. They have programs for people with HIV. California, where I came from, Oklahoma, the same way. They have, they have great resources for them, everything that they need. If you're an addict, they have things for you, programs available for you. But for some reason, this sex offender thing, which, by the way, slapping a girl on the butt that didn't ask for it could be a sexual offense. You could, in, in theory... For slapping a woman on the butt, which I'm not saying is okay, don't go out and do it, people. But at the same time, do you deserve to be locked away for 20 years because you got too drunk and you're like, hey, it looks like someone's butt I know, and you slap it, and next thing you know, you're locked away in a shadow prison 
for the next 20 years and you're not getting out. That to me seems a little sober up. That to me doesn't make you a sex addict. That to me doesn't make you a threat to society because you slapped a girl on the butt. Because let's face it, I played football and I played sports growing up. We slapped each other on the butt and everywhere else you could imagine, and no one went to jail for it. But now people are being locked away for this. When I say this can happen to anybody, it literally could happen to anybody. And it's it's not just sex offenders that are being locked away in these facilities. So what gives? There's got to be something. There's got to be an ulterior motive. There's got to be a benefit for the powers that be to fund facilities like this. And oh, by the way, not just fund them, but expand them and make them bigger and add more beds. There's an, There's got to be an ulterior motive here. There, it, this is not a black and white issue. There's something very, very sneaky going on, in my opinion. The the, uh, um, uh, the attitude that young men grew up with, and, and I, I I grew up in the 19. I was born in the 1940s. I grew up in the 1950s and 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 uh, uh, 60s. And um, uh, I, I have to say that that looking back, um, my relationships with young women were silly uh, and selfish. Um, I, I, I don't believe I, I committed a crime, um, uh, but I, but I'm not entirely proud of, of the, of the way that I treated or my attitude toward young women. And I do think that, that part of the, the, uh, the bill that I drafted, uh, would to put, uh, uh, state's resources into, uh, education. Young man, I have a grandson, um, uh, need to be, um, we need to, we need to be examples for those young men. Um, and we have to continue to reinforce uh, their their positive and respectful behavior. Um, uh, I feel very strongly about that, and, and uh, we don't do enough of that. Uh, it it um, behooves us to uh, um, pay attention to kids as they grow up. The, the, um, David Brooks is a columnist in the New York Times had an article uh, early this last week, maybe, about um, uh, boys and men. And it was very interesting. He talked about the social development of boys and men and the, and, uh, the difficulties that boys and men uh, face. Not any greater than those women face, but 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 uh, uh, he discussed but them this morning. Wor- it's worthy of the discussion. Men yes. deserve yeah. – little boys trapped in men's bodies deserve to be talked about too. Yeah, yeah. And this morning in the, in the Times there was a flurry of letters uh, responding to, to Brooks' column. All of which agreed, just as you did. Right now, um, we have to we have to have a conversation and discussion about this. And the the, uh, uh, the number of men who um, um, who the courts, for one reason or another, have considered to be uh, um, uh, dangerous is growing. Um, but our consciousness uh, should be growing too. You 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 mentioned why is it that 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 we can't solve these problems? Um, when I ran for office, um, my campaign manager, a wonderfully able um, a woman, uh, said, "You know, politics is transactional, and we need to we need to work against that." And now, four years later, I look at I look at at, at uh, politics, and I say, "Politics is transactional," and and I uh, I gave away my vote, <laughs> and I didn't uh, I didn't say, "Look at uh, I I want." Um, a sound tax policy. I want a sound housing policy, but I want you to pay attention to uh, uh, the, the issues that I have as well, and let's work together on this. Um, sometimes within our caucus, and certainly across the aisle with Republicans, it's it's real tough to uh, uh, <laughs> to uh, have have these 
uh, what's the word, symbiotic relationship where, where both sides benefit. So, um, you know, I had a, um, this, uh, I think I mentioned to you earlier that I, that I um, uh, introduced a bill on, on firearm safety. And uh, after I, I did that, the day after I did that, I went over and, and spoke to a fellow with whom I served on a committee. He's a Republican. And I said, Josh, I'd love to have your support on this. And he just laughed. He said, Steve, I just love the bill. You just raised $10,000 for me <laughs> in opposition to the, the Democrats. He was a Republican. He said, oh, yeah, it's great. Uh, uh, all my constituents now say that uh, Democrats are, and you are, in favor of, of, of firearm of, uh, regulations and uh my my contributions have increased. So, <laughs> that, that befuddled look on your face says it all. Why? Uh, and and if I'll tell you, if I had the the bill I introduced about uh, about the the uh, uh, MSOP, the Sexual Offenders Program in Minnesota, the number one priority is is prevention. Number two is support. Number three is treatment. I wanted to change the name from Sexual Offenders to the Office of Treatment Support or the, to Prevention Support and Treatment, and I wanted a a, a robust effort in education and a review of the uh, uh, of the courts and the way that they assign people to preventative detention and also to the way they uh, um, pay attention to uh, um, petitions for release. Um, and I, I still feel very strongly about that. Oh, I, I think so too. And you brought up something earlier. You, there's, not, there's not programs that are set by, we have all of these government programs that are supposed to benefit yeah. people. But the one thing that's glaring to me that's it's void of any support is keeping families together. A lot of people get married because they get horny and just want to have sex, especially with the Christian community. Like, okay, I can't wait, so I better marry her. And then, you know, people get drunk and fall in love and they, you know, drink away their discernment. So they make bad decisions. They get people pregnant. They jump in relationships that they shouldn't be in. They don't have the tools. People jump from relationship to relationship. We live in hookup culture where, for, I mean, your sex or nudity or porn is is a is a breath away on any device that's available so we have all of these things that are just attacking any sense of a healthy relationship we have divorce rates and and people people moms well i mean there's single dads too but we have single moms trying to like provide for their family and play the mom and dad role none of these things are good so there's no real support for the family and holding the family together sure there's welfare but throwing money at anything is never going to fix the problem. It's never going to get to the root of the issue. Uh, all of the, the 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 boys and girls clubs and those kind of things that we used to have all over the country where we had these safe places for kids to go, they're gone. Yeah. So where do kids go? Well, they either stare at a phone all day or they're on the streets, you know, doing whatever. They're already dabbling with drugs. They're already dabbling with sex. All these things where... It's we have all these people accelerating how fast they have to grow up, but yet they don't really have the foundational pieces to really grow properly. So I'm with you on this. They, they, we, we about not having the resources there for kids and for families that helps. I grew up. I remember. I, so when I, I grew up, I was a privilege. I grew up in a upper middle class home in Oklahoma. I went to the country club, had vacations. I mean, I had it all. When, you know, we were at church, however many days a week, Baptists go, which is like, what, seven days a week, I think Baptists go to church. Uh, <laughs> not really, three, but three times. 
We're doing all that stuff, going to the country club, doing the black tie events. We had it all. But guess what? I was still molested, still abused. And when I, but I didn't feel safe and I didn't know where to go. And then when finally I got to talk to a counselor about it, ah, it's normal for boys to do that. I was raped. How was that normal? You know, and like that was there. So anyway, I became a monster. And I, and even though we had the money, but there was no real resources for someone like me that was going through what I went through. And it wasn't real common. Like, hey, I was molested by guys and girls. So, you know, like, you don't want to hear that because me growing up, like people said, and I hope this didn't get you in trouble uh, for me saying this, but, you know, guys back then called each other faggots, whether you were or not. And I remember being called that and didn't know what to think about it. And I'm like, oh, my God. So do people know what happened to me? Does that make me gay? Does it? I'm, I don't have, I didn't have the resources. I didn't have a safe place to go. I didn't have all that. So then I got to make things up on my own and find my own way to ease my pain and ease my suffering. So drugs and sex, 20 year chem sex addict. And all the hell that I caused came from that. Basically being a scared little boy trapped in a man's body that was doing grown up stuff but as if it was a child doing it and just wrecking lives, including my own. Yeah. I'm not blaming anybody because thank God there's the resources now for me um, because I found them because I wanted to get well. But I also had a vision of hope because I grew up in an upper middle class home. I knew what success looked like. So no matter what destruction I caused, I had some glimpse of how to pull myself out of it. I had some drive for a better life. Not everybody grows up like me. My heart for this civil commitment, the, the civil commitment laws, not everyone in there is poor, but there's a lot of poor people. There's a lot of people that grew up, I mean, really just the, the, the prison system in general. There's people that didn't grow up with uh, parents. There's people that didn't grow up with, they grew up in poverty. They grew up always struggling. They, the only options they had were gangs or drugs or whatever. Like th That is why we have a problem. There's no resources for the youth and it's a lot easier to heal a young person than it is a grown man i mean my healing journey has been the most grueling seven years of my life that was more grueling when, when i was a drug addict but getting to the youth we can stop these problems we can educate we can teach young people the proper way to treat the opposite sex or the same sex if that's what they're into we can do those things so what is it going to take to pull these resources away from dropping bombs on 30 countries and all that stuff, or all the other wasted stuff that we have going on in this country and pull resources and give it to the family, give it to the youth to give them a fair chance. Because without the youth, we're doomed. I mean, the, without the youth living the lives that they were created to live, to live, we are doomed. We need them healthy and we need them strong. Sorry for my rant. No, well, that's a. Those are the feelings that I think a lot of men at uh, uh, up in Moose Lake in the in the sexual offense program feel. Uh, they 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 were they felt helpless as children or as young men. Um, they were without resources. Um, they were without self confidence, um, mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, and they made mistakes. Some were very serious mistakes. Some were relatively minor mistakes. Some uh, had had terrible consequences, and others were were relatively minor. But um, uh, our, our responsibility as a, as a society with resources is to take a look around us and say, 
Um, we have individuals who need uh, who are adults and who have made uh, uh, made mistakes, but it's our responsibility to help. Um, there are families that we need to uh, uh, pay attention to and support, and hopefully uh, find a way for them to uh, um, uh, realize some of their dreams. Uh, and we have uh, young children who we don't want to punish for the sins of their poor uh, uh, adults. And, and um, uh, my my optimism is that that um, this constitution of ours uh, has, uh, is the oldest uh, democratic constitution in the world, and and I believe that that it's flexible. Um, but my my um, concerns are that um, <clears throat> short-term animosities, of separations, and uh, suspicions are going to uh, make it difficult to uh, to keep things in line. Um, but um, people like you, uh, and I mean this uh, uh, genuinely, people like you want want uh, uh, people like me to feel that there are people listening. And um, I hope we continue that, and I hope the people that take uh, my place in the legislature. Uh, um, look forward to uh, doing good things. Yeah, I, I, I hope. I mean, I, I don't. Uh, I, I think. No, we said we talked about this on air about being the world's mayor. Like I, like it makes me sick. Some of the stuff that I see, and and you know, and I've, I've, I've had a unique lens in life that I've been able to see things through. Um, and I, everyone has a unique lens, but, but for me, getting to see like the ultimate of success and with people and getting to work with them and then also getting to work with the dregs of society or the, you know, that have been labeled that yeah. and then being a little bit of both myself, yeah. I, like, I just have been able to see and working in healthcare and working with the hospital systems and working with insurance companies and and then get oh, even working in contract manufacturing and getting to know how that whole game works and it's this lens of there's a lot of fraud there's a lot of deceit there's a lot of people that are trying to get up on each other um there's there's people that look turn a blind eye to things because for whatever reason they feel that it's in their best interest to do so what what i'm getting at is this we have a world of nothing but dishonesty and uh, there's there's a lot of deceit and there's a lot of gaslighting and there's a lot of that. And there's just, it's void of truth. And I pray with all my heart and I, and I'm not a Trump guy. I'm not even a, I'm not a Republican. I'm not politically inclined. Cause I don't really, I haven't seen too many people that I can look up and go, this guy has our back and he is truly a public servant and he is doing it the way he's supposed to do it. The way that God, when he established the, the kingdom government, that model. Like I have yet to see the guy that's saying, this is how I'm running. This is what, I, or even woman for that matter, that I'm going to run. And I truly am here to serve the public and to yeah. make this better. And I'm going to make so much stinking noise until someone listens to me because this is an injustice and it's got to stop. Like I pray that there is a youth movement of people that have just had enough that come in and start taking over and take the seats, not necessarily take your seat until you're ready to give it up, but, you know, to take those seats of people that are there for bribes and there to, to serve their own interest. I'm sick of that. I don't want to pay taxes to, to, to anyone that's doing that. I want to pay. What I love about Minnesota is the tax dollars go to take care of the parks, the lakes. I mean, it's beautiful when it snows like it did this morning already. 
There's, you know, the streets are already clean. Like, I love that. I want to pay taxes for those kind of things. But then also I want to pay taxes to a government that's going to take care of the voiceless, that's going to take care of the, the people that have been shunned from society, the people that have been locked away. I want to see them be able to have another chance, too, because I lived a very reckless life. I'm not trying to make this about me, but I just as easily could be in Moose Lake or any of those other facilities, even though I wasn't a sex offender. But I lived an evil life. The book that I wrote with my wife is called The Devil Inside Me. That is who I was. But if I can turn my life around and live the life of my dreams, there's no reason that the other men and women that are locked up in these, in these prisons shouldn't have the same opportunity, especially the ones that are working to turn their life around, the ones that are working to heal. Yeah. Why would, those are the people, those are the people, the ones that have gone through the most abuse, the ones that have suffered the most, the ones that have dealt with all that, that choose to make a life for themselves. Yeah. They get to be superheroes in, as far as I'm concerned because they get to take all that crap that was meant to kill them and now they get to use it to help other people and help set them free too. So why aren't we giving more opportunities not just to the sex of the people who are part of the sex offender program but other prisoners? Why aren't we helping them with these tools? Like how can we get them that help? How can we bring programs to the prison that that prepare their minds for life outside the prison, say they get out. Yeah. How, how do we start? Like, where do we start? Well, I, I believe as you do uh, in, in a, a rehabilitation and a, uh, a dedication to a, um, a healing and growth. Um, and as you do, I, I also believe that, that um, Americans and others probably will, um, will respond to leadership. And, um, you know, I look back at my life and, and uh, uh, think about where has leadership come from at the national level. <clears throat> Franklin Roosevelt led us uh, through a depression and and in uh, a war and came out the other end. Uh, um, uh, at least America came out the other end with a uh, with the defense of its democracy. Um, I graduated. Uh, uh, I, I was in college when when uh, John Kennedy was running for office, and and I think that there were a lot of people who believed in in the ideas that that he was talking about. Um, there are people in, in uh, uh, communities of color. Cesar Chavez is another favorite of mine. Cesar uh, Poeta, yes, we can, we can do it, um, uh, and and those are inspirational. Um, there are individuals that. Well, there are individuals at, at, at Moose Lake who have been inspiring to me. I, I tell people that I've had a, a good friend who was at uh, another um, uh, another one of Minnesota's prisons, and he was set there for six years for a sexual offense. Bright guy, <clears throat> terrific um, um, future ahead of him, made a mistake. But when he uh, I, um, was in prison, he... He just as you said, I, I I know that there's something within me that that can change. He became enrolled in a in an online uh, a graduate program. He now has a he's out. He has his PhD and and he's uh, he's offering counseling to others. So it's That's possible. Uh, I don't want to be a I don't want to be a romantic about this. I know that that uh, that gentleman had a lot uh, uh, in his heart before he went in, but. We can make we can make a, a difference and and uh, <laughs> um, I worked at a museum for a while and, and um, <clears throat> uh, in government and politics and one of the the uh, 
the lessons we try to suggest to people is that that, indivi that an individual could make a difference. And we gave out little buttons that said, I, I can make a difference. And I, I told a friend the other day that <clears throat> I still have one of those buttons that said, I can make a difference, but, but I'm going to make a change. And it says, I, I thought I could make a difference. <laughs> but I, I, um, I, I wouldn't be talking to you today. I wouldn't be uh, uh, worrying about uh, uh, the future of our politics if I didn't believe that each one of us can make a difference. And uh, uh, those who are listening to us can make a difference. Those who are are incarcerated um, can make a difference. And we should yeah. make sure that uh, everybody has a chance to do that. Josh, I know that yeah. there are people that talk to you, so I, I, I shouldn't, uh, uh, I should give up the pleasure of, of talking to you, so, which, which has been great, by the way. Oh, listen, I, I'm honored to have you here. And you're right, but like Daniel, what he's been able to accomplish at MSOP yeah. It's so inspiring to me. I, I'm just like, wow, you talk about being void of resources, but still finding a way. Like, I admire that kind of stuff so much. And and anyone that's listening right now, especially if you're, you know, whether you're a state senator or, or any, hold any political office, or if you're one of the people that are fighting injustices, if you need a spot on our network, I, this is what we do as a nonprofit. We'll, we'll make a podcast and TV show for you. Because we need more messages out there that are speaking the truth and talking about the stuff that some people want buried. Because media controls the narrative. And our mission as a nonprofit is to literally take the power of that. The, right now, the, all the power of media lies in the hands of a few. We want to destroy that and create millions of media. This may be you. This may be Daniel. It is Daniel. Okay. I better get it. Yeah, please do. Yes. Hello. You got to hit zero. Hi, Daniel and Steve. Uh, I'm just talking to Joshua, and uh, our conversation has uh, been a real pleasure, but I know that you're uh, eager to get on, so uh, maybe I should uh, move aside. Uh, Russell's going to call me? Oh, okay. Okay, sure. Okay, fine. Uh, I'll, I'll mention that to Joshua. Okay? Thank you. Bye-bye. Russell, uh, uh, Russ Hatton is going to call you. Oh, Okay. I thought, is, is Daniel not going to talk? I, I think he's going to come on second. He said he would have Russell talk first, and then, then oh. he would. So should I stay on, or should I uh, make move aside? Sir, if you, if you want to be on, please stay on. Uh, it's okay. up to you, sir. Okay. You're not. I'm, I'm honored to have you here, and, and honestly, it gives so much more credibility uh, to these gentlemen that you're here, or even that you've even spoken on their behalf, because... You know, it's it's one thing. It's like it's oh yeah, sure, everyone's innocent in prison. <laughs> so it it I think you being here, the fact that you've been here helps open the ears of some people to go, okay. hey, this needs well, to be fixed. I'll stick around to hear. Uh, um, uh, Daniel and Russell are. I, I've met Daniel and Russell and had a conversation with them in person, and um, they're uh, they're good men. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to their call. The um, I want to ask you, is what would happen if somebody ran for office and they're like, yeah, I was a drug addict. Yeah, I've been to jail. 
yeah, I was an abuser. Yeah, I was a cheater. Yeah, I've been divorced multiple times, but God changed my heart. And I've, you know, and I, and here I am. I like, I'm a work in progress. I'm not perfect. I screw up. I may pray for you. And five minutes later, try to bite your nose off or tell you to go F yourself. But then I'm going to ask for forgiveness right after. I'm flawed. I'm not perfect. But my heart is for the people. And I'm here to serve. And I'm here to elevate everyone around me. Does a politician have any chance of winning with that attitude? Well, it depends depends on their district and um, uh, their constituents and and how convincing they can be. I mean, I just um, I think I I think the constituent, I think the population wants to believe. Um, And um, I think they wanted to believe in John Kennedy. I think they wanted to believe that uh, all we have to fear is fear itself. Um, And I think they want to have confidence that we can that that we can uh, um, uh, move forward. A friend of mine um, told me about a a, a French statesman named Jean Monnet. similar to the painter, and a book that he wrote, uh, his memoirs. And Monet um, uh, became an adult during the First World War. His family Monet? Was, Are Monet, you yeah. about Monet? Uh, Mo, no, Monet. Jean Monet. Uh, Is it um, M-O-N-E-T? M-O-N-N-E-T. Now, there's okay. a painter. Yeah, um, but this fellow's, this fellow's uh, family was from uh, uh, a upper middle class, uh, had an excellent education, became involved in um, um, government affairs, and from uh, 1917, 1920, into the 1960s, he was he was influential, and, and eventually was probably uh, as responsible for as anybody for the uh, uh, organization of the Ur- European Union. Monet never held a, a, a political office, never ran for office, <clears throat> and never identified himself with one political party in France or another. But his his book. Um, uh, says, look, people have to talk to each other about these issues. They have to, they have to uh, respond to people. They have to respond to each other as if they're as if they're moving toward a a, a common goal. Uh, if we want to, if we want to end violence in and suspicion and animosity in Europe, we have to find a way to work together. Now, we haven't completely done that, but but we've 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 made efforts to. To unify an economy, the common market, uh, 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 and efforts to to uh, um, unify steel production. But um, his lesson, I guess, is, is that uh, we aren't going to be successful by calling each other's names and and denying the opportunity to to have discussions. And I, I have to say that that um, caucus politics is. Um, um, has a long way to go. I mean, we have, we just have to change the, the mindset that you know. People say, "Oh, politicians just all a politician wants to do is get reelected." Well, politicians want to get reelected so that so their political party can be in the majority. And in the in the way that our constitutions work, the majority party makes the rules. Um, uh, and if that majority party is vulnerable to the influence from the outside, as, as you suggested, and as I believe as well. Um, uh, <laughs> our democracy is vulnerable, and uh, um, our commonwealth is, is is vulnerable too. How do we how do we make decisions that that that's best for our future? You, you mentioned uh, our, our, our young people. Uh, I I I I don't know what kind of lessons we're teaching our young people. I you know I 
maybe maybe they can turn around and say, look at that generation um, uh, grew up uh, uh, in the epilogue to a, a world war. And yet it couldn't avoid uh, um, uh, small wars uh, elsewhere. And it couldn't avoid a confrontation in Vietnam. And it couldn't, avo- it, 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 it couldn't um, um, uh, find a way to uh, solve all racial uh, uh, issues. Um, we have to try better and uh, try harder. And, and hopefully that, that will be the, the case. And people like Russell uh, and, um, and Daniel and, and all the rest at, at MSOP might be able to, to uh, say, uh, we're willing to try. Um, give, us a, give us a chance. We know we made mistakes. But the state can't uh, turn around and say they refuse to, uh, to think about us because um, that just doesn't solve any problem. Families are, are important. Our, 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 our health and well-being is important. Our opportunities are important. And, and this sort of communication uh, today here are, is important. I agree. Yeah. And we have to get more messages out about this. Yes. Yeah. Because this carries over into other issues as well, I believe. You know, Joshua, there there are people in the in the house that I've that I've served with that are running without opposition. Um, I have a friend down in Winona. Uh, he does have opposition this time, but in the in the past, he's been he's been in the house for thirty six years. He's run without opposition. One of the affluent suburbs of Edina, um, the, the representative that I was elected with, uh, Heather Edelson, has an opponent this time, but last time she didn't have an opponent, and and, uh, and she's a Democrat. Um, there are people in in, um, in uh, Minneapolis. Jamie Long um, uh, represents South Minneapolis, uh, uh, one of the neighbor one of the many neighborhoods I, I lived in as a child. Um, uh, he doesn't have an opponent. Um, they're they're not philosopher kings, you know. They're they're well-meaning people, but our our political system hasn't encouraged uh, people to say, um, um, "I'll step forward, I'll I'll exchange ideas, and I'll ask for your vote." Um, my district, uh, my district was, or the district I, I represent was, was represented by a Republican for 10 years before I, before I ran for, for office. Um, and when I decided to leave, there were, there was, there was some interest in, in, in running, but, uh, in the end, uh, a, a young man who has moved back to the district, doesn't have much, uh, um, doesn't have any history, real history in the district has, uh, got the nomination because nobody else there was there were no other candidates no other there was no other debate and discussion our political system needs to encourage leadership they need to encourage people that would otherwise uh, uh, um, dedicate their careers to something and we you know you know we have some wonderful people in the, in the house I, you know one of my favorites is kelly morris and she's an md from um, um Wyzetta or minnetonka um uh, she's great uh, uh Gene Pulowski down in, in Winona, a thoughtful guy, been around uh, for a long time. Uh, there are individuals I have great great respect for. Uh, Elise, Mann, uh, Elise Mann, who's another uh, MD, she's running for the Senate this time. But um, uh, we get rolled up into this uh, issue of partisan politics and uh, issues as important as MSOP uh, are left behind, are, are ignored. That's uh, I. I've got to find, so I live in Prior Lake. I need to find out if there's anyone running <laughs> uncontested. I what, what does it take to run? Like, what do you need? I don't need any campaign posters. I don't believe in, I don't like pollution. And I don't, and I cannot stand litter. And I don't, when I see those signs, I'm like, all those trees died for that? Like, 
this is the year 2022. Like I would be doing podcasts and blogs and taking advantage of free advertising space and then run ads where I need to. But like, I know how to navigate media. I don't need to spend any money. So how much does it cost to get in, in the game? I think yeah, I think the filing fee is a hundred bucks. That's it? <laughs> yeah. I gotta look this up. I'm gonna run, I, I think I gotta do it. I have to do it because I ultimately, I need to get some credentials so I can be the world's mayor, like officially. I want the United Nations to like have this award. And by the way, the world's mayor is really a mindset because the mayor is supposed to elevate the people yeah. he serves. Yeah. That's what we do as a nonprofit. And yeah. we use media. Media media is the most powerful medium in the world. And we're a voice for the voiceless. And we elevate other voices for the voiceless. But I do kind of like this. I got I'm itching. You got me all fired up. Like I feel like I could either go work out right now or go run for office. And I, I, I got to check this out. Well, I think down at Prior Lake, I think you may have a couple of good people. Robert Bierman may have a part of Prior Lake. Uh, he's a small business owner in Northfield, I believe. I, a really a nice guy and thoughtful guy, uh, hard work. I don't want to mess with any nice people. Maybe I should move back downtown because that to me, let me tell you something from an outsider's perspective. Uh, not that this really is on the subject, but we're waiting for the phone to ring. <laughs> so I'm going to just talk about whatever. Um, I, when I first started visiting uh, Minneapolis, and who I, I ended up marrying a Minnesota woman, um, but when I first started coming here to visit her, um, you know, we'd stay downtown, we'd meet in different cities, but downtown, just the vibe, walking around and, and getting to be around people of all faiths. I mean, I'm a follower of Christ, but I love my Muslim brothers and sisters. I love my Hindu neighbors. I love, I, I just love people. Like, just don't be a jerk. Yeah. Like, just be a good person. Be a nice person. Don't be a jerk. And I, I'm going to love you. I don't love you even if you're a jerk. That said, I love the vibe. Everybody just kind of like got along. And yeah, I know there was violence, but it wasn't that crazy. And then I was here visiting when the riots broke out. Yeah. And that's why I actually stayed. I felt my spirit I was supposed to stay. I wanted to go back to L.A. Bad God had other plans for me. And I'm glad. Then we said, I'm moving downtown. Moving downtown. I loved it. Got to experience it. Yes, it was different. Yes, it was during lockdown. But it was still special. It was a special place to live. It reminded me of San Diego. I know it's a weird comparison because San Diego, the weather's perfect all the time. Here, not so much. But the vibe, the community, the people, it reminded me of that. The arts, the you know, the theater. And it it was just, it's just a, an amazing city. And then after the trial, I don't know how, but after the trial, things got really worse and more scary. And that was heartbreaking to me because the people that have built that city, that have lived there, have contributed to it, they didn't deserve, they don't deserve what's happening there right now. And it's still happening. It's still scary. I, I love going downtown, but I won't take my girls there anymore because it's, it's, not, it's not safe. So yeah. maybe that's where I should move and run for mayor there <laughs> or say representative. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know how much power I really have, but I do know how to utilize the media and they would have a really hard time shutting me up. Well, I, uh, uh, many, uh, I, uh, 
I grew up in Minneapolis, but haven't lived there um, since about 1965, I guess. But um, uh, well, it's my changed son, some since then. My, yeah, my son has lived there. I and and of course, uh, you know, I, uh, people talk about the old Time magazine issue that had Governor Wendell Anderson on the front holding up a fish, and said, and and the story was uh, a state that works. And I've gone back to look at that article uh, uh, frequently. And uh, it's a very positive article, but it's it is so different from the mindset that you would, that would be written about Minneapolis or Minnesota or any place else. The photographs were of the Walker Art Center, of the Dayton's department store downtown, of uh, some of the businessmen, and uh, there was a confidence that Minneapolis was a uh, you know the first city of the West and and uh, uh, a place that that uh, encouraged people to to run for office. The, the, the Citizens League was an enormously effective. Uh, uh, organization and uh, leadership in business was was positive on the other hand um, uh, it was a uh, a world in which um, uh, our minority uh, communities were were uh, that's Daniel I think our minority communities were were not included hello You have a real phone. It's not even a cell phone. It's a phone. To accept the call, press zero. To refuse the call. Home phone? I haven't seen that in a long time. Your call will now be connected. Thank you for GTL. Daniel, you should call Joshua. Or 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 Russell should. No one called me. You're trying. Oh, you're trying? Yeah, it's not getting through. Okay, well, um, uh, Joshua, they said they're trying to get through, but they have been unsuccessful. That's, oh my gosh. Okay, that's weird. I don't know why. I'm, my phone's right here. Um, yeah, he has his phone in his hand and, and just waiting for the call. Try, yeah, try one more time. Try, try again. Oh. Does he have missed calls? Oh, I see they left the message too. I didn't get a call. Uh, yeah, he said that that uh, his phone shows that uh, you left a message, but uh, uh, the call didn't come through for some reason. Okay, I'll hang up. He's going to try again. That's odd. But uh, you know the um, uh, and and as as the as the uh, profile of the city has changed, it um, uh, uh, people move and and. Uh, David Brooks' article today uh, was reflecting on the the conversation that the Los Angeles City Council uh, that that's recently recently been publicized, where members of the council were um, uh, yep. uh, injudicious about the the language that they use. Um, that's uh, a very know, way to say that. <laughs> uh, 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 Al Franken uh, grew up in St. Louis Park, and uh, Tom, oh, what's the uh, uh, the national columnist of uh, almost a Tom uh, uh, <laughs> also grew up there, and uh, St. Louis Park was a was a vibrant Jewish uh, uh, community. Uh, I don't know if the majority of people who lived in St. Louis Park during the during the fifties, and and a and and a uh, and a new Steve Simon, our Secretary of State, came out of St. Louis Park, and an unusual number of people um, of Jewish background uh, grew up in St. Louis Park. And they talk a lot about uh, uh, that community, and uh, uh, it, you know it was a growing post World War II um, middle class community, and and uh, but they had moved away from the city. The, the 
Jewish population had been in North North Minneapolis. They moved out, and 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 families of color moved in. Um, in St. Paul, the same thing. Uh, uh, the Jewish community moved away from. Uh, and. We'll have to fi- we'll have to finish that conversation. That- okay, go ahead. Russell. You're on. Russell, you're on. Hey, how's it going? Good. Say hi to Steve. Nice to hear your voice. Yeah, yes, too. Well, my man, I haven't really got to talk to you much, so please, this is an opportunity for you to share anything on your heart. If you want to say hello to anyone uh, on the outside, give anyone your love. You, the floor is yours, sir. Yes, I uh, say hello to my children, uh, my daughter Destiny, Kiana, Paradise, and Tristan, and Baby on the that's awesome very cool so how did you uh how did you end up meeting mr sale What is it? What does it mean for you? For you know, out people on the outside that are paying attention to what's happening there, can you tell? Can you tell the public that's listening right now, like what this, what what that means to you to be able to get your voices heard by other people, and also why it's so important? Yeah, it, it, it means uh, like work to me. Words can't even explain it. How how important it is. How valuable it is. And for speaking for myself personally, is like I'm really grateful um, for this opportunity to be on your podcast and be talking with you. And um, it, it, for me, I, I've been in this program 15 years, and it's been like really challenging. In 2014, I lost my wife of 17 years to undetermined causes, and I had to put the grieving process aside to make sure that my children were placed in a safe home. And it. it it's really difficult to keep fighting this fight because and, and I'm, I'm certain that there's the public that are aware that there's, we don't have an outdate. This is an indeterminate sentence. And when I hear that there's people on the outside fighting for us and supporting us, that gives me the motivation and the inspiration to keep fighting and to keep educating myself and doing everything that I can to educate the public on why this is so wrong and what's wrong with it. And like one of the biggest things I've been working on now is to educate the public on um, this type of process. The shadow prison was meant to commit. They they say it's for the worst of the worst. But in 2005, um, Ocean Daniel and I got a document, a leaked document that that boldly claims that the vast majority of the patients committed to this program do not 
that there's 90 men in this program who don't even have a criminal record. So there's, there's a lot of problems that I want to share with the public and bring to the public to start asking questions to those people who are in charge to operate this program, the executive directors, the clinical directors. Um, yeah, it's, it's really inspirational to have people share it that they're supporting us and that's reflective. What what would be the most the, the top two top three most important things the public must know about what's happening at MSOP, which is then theoretically happening at the other facilities like it? One of the things I've looked at, and I've been corresponding with guys, and I think at least fifteen or sixteen other institutions across the nation, is that there's this claim that we suffer severe mental illnesses. But in the records and reports that I've received from guys in other institutions, and I spent a good year looking at a lot of records and reports, medical reports in this program of guys, and I've identified that the, the majority, the vast majority of the population doesn't suffer those severe mental illness. And one of the things is that, that the biggest thing that the Supreme Court rule and support is that the constitutional, constitutionality of these statutes require that evaluators must determine if a, if a present mental illness exists. Without the medical justification, and this is preventive detention. Well, that's the biggest thing. I, I strongly encourage people across the nation, if you got family members that are locked up in these preventive detention facilities, these shadow prisons, start looking into asking these clinical directors and these executive directors of these programs, what is it in my, my loved one's record that shows that they, they have the signs and symptoms associated with these illnesses, these mental illnesses that they're locked up for. Because I almost guarantee that our current uh, presentation or our, our current mental status isn't reflected in our records. And I speak about this from experience. When I filed a petition for discharge in 2019, they said a lot of the work that I was, was doing wasn't being recorded into my, into my uh, medical records. And so all they had to go off was what's called a, a static or the historical record, a criminal record, which can't be changed. And the other thing I discovered in this program, I don't know about other programs, as far as like their policies when they write someone up for a rule or policy violation. But in this program, when we have a rule violation, they write us up for it. And they say, well, because you had this rule violation, you can't be progressed in the program. And then when we file our petition for the court, there's, um, they look at the static criminal record, and then they look at these transient rule violations that they try to make a link saying, well, here's a criminal history, and here's the rule violation. And it could be something simple as taking food out of the child or giving someone a hug or even guys have been written up for these like really petty rule violations. They try to make a link that these things are somehow um, associated with a uh, risk of public safety. And it, it, it's a pretty thorough process. I, when I first started studying it, I wrote a 87-page document, and so far I've gotten it broken down to 13 pages. And I recently just uh, mailed one to uh, Mr. Sandel. I don't know if he's received yet, but I wanted to explain to the public that the perception that legislators and the operators of these programs, the directors of these programs, are telling the public that we suffer these severe mental illness. Well, that's just not the case. Wow. That, 
so this is what's the word that this would describe because it's obviously injustice is there it feels very for lack of better term raping of your rights it it seems like a form of slavery uh nothing about that seems right because the whole argument we were talking about this earlier mr sendell about how we've given psychiatrists the 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 power of the law essentially they get the rule book they get to make the rules it's under their pen's authority that somebody can be locked up forever like russell here and yet at the same time now these he's just saying that a majority are not even mentally ill but that's the whole argument why they're there to begin with that how how do that that should be the reason that this thing gets blown up to begin with that alone first of all psychiatrists shouldn't have that authority anyway but since they do they're doing it all wrong i spoke to the uh, lead psychiatrist last week um, a woman i think uh, elizabeth pearson i believe or peterson and i said uh, do you consider msop a uh, a, a, a therapy center or a, a punitive detention center and she said oh well i i consider it a a, a treatment center and i said well uh the, the uh, our success our treatment success has been pretty unsuccessful in in the 35 years that the program has been in place there are only 16 people who have been released and uh uh there are individuals like daniel and like russell who uh, uh are eager and able to uh, uh continue their lives outside of uh, this place and, and yet uh, they continue to be incarcerated what is she gonna if i can make it, please if i can make a distinction in this program it, it's almost anyone can give us these diagnoses when they when yeah. they got this um this yeah. document that me and daniel was talking about and i i sent a copy to mr sandel yeah is that they they minimize the qualifications of employees here of the staff so originally it was a psychiatrist that was supposed to conduct his assessment now it's down to someone who's a psychologist who's licensed and eligible um it could be a social worker it could be a marriage uh a counselor so that's another thing that's wrong with these with this, this program specifically the mfop if i was practicing I would go, I would get in trouble if I set up a business right now just to be a, a counselor without certification. I would get in trouble. Like, I, and then now playing doctor, playing doctor's okay. I mean, we all do it anyway. When we Google, I've got a, I've, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm bleeding out of my ear. What does this mean? I mean, we all play self-diagnose, but it doesn't give us the authority to play doctor. That, that's like not imposter syndrome. That's not the right term, but. This doesn't feel right either. I thought there was rules and regulations in place to prevent things like this from happening. The the um, when I when I've spoken to um, uh, the director of MSOP uh, and talked about this issue of prevention and, and treatment and release, she said our job uh, is is uh, after the after the individual is committed. And until they're released, we don't have anything to do uh, beforehand. We don't have anything to do with, uh, after that. And and they refuse to pay attention to the, to the um, um, the quality uh, 
and the uh, uh, viability of the of the of the treatment, and that's what is uh, that's what's so disturbing. And and, uh, and we just don't have oversight over that. Uh, there is a the, the commissioner of human Re- uh, the uh, commissioner of human services is their boss, but she has lots on her hands, and and uh, that program, a huge program, um, is is um, uh, self policing. And that, that's why it's so important to have a, a, an advisory committee or an oversight committee of, of citizens and individuals who have uh, experience. There have been three <coughs> um, uh, detailed observations and, and reviews of the program um, uh, appointed by the government. I think 2009, 2011, a governor's task force, and then, of course, a, 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 a court case, the, the uh, uh, Carson's case, which is yet unresolved. Which has made specific uh, suggestions on on, uh, the, on exactly the issues that Russell's talking about, the commitment process and the and the and the and the review of, of petitions, and none of those uh, 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 those recommendations have been uh, uh, endorsed or pursued. Uh, um, the Attorney General's Office published in 2019 a uh, uh, a review of. Uh, 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 the state's response to sexual crimes, and there were there were probably fifteen or twenty suggestions. But the suggestions were all: what do we do in response to the crime? How do we how do we capture? How do we identify the, the and 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 uh, incarcerate? Um, and how do we better enforce the law? None of them were about uh, uh, treatment or prevention. And uh, you know, Joshua, you and I were talking at the beginning of the, of the podcast about trying to find a way to get the, the legislation, the law-making um, um, uh, branch of government to pay attention to this. And, and uh, the, the legislature has been, imp- has been uh, um, failing in, uh, in, in that kind of a discussion. Russell and, and, and Daniel, who, who you talk to later, uh, are, are experts on this. And, and the reason, and, and, and I have a... I have, I have, Remaining. Well, anyway, I, I, I feel so strongly about the, the issue of civil rights and human rights uh, uh, as the practice up there is I'm, I, I should probably stop. <laughs> well, I'm passionate with you, and obviously Russell is as well. Russell, you have, are you yeah. going to call back? Uh, or? Yeah, I think Daniel's going to call right now because we're okay. close to our contact. We'll do it again, man. But, uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice, nice talking to you, and thank you for sharing your heart, man. Yeah, yeah. All right, thank you, Steve. See you, see you, brother. Thank you, Russell. Um. Yeah, I, 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 I'm trying to make as much noise as I can about this, but I'm, I'm grateful for people like you because without you, this really, I don't believe it gets legs. Obviously, Daniel, well, Russell and Daniel and others are doing around the country um you know help but having someone like yourself involved it matters it matters because you're a voice of authority and well, those, uh, those guys uh, are those guys are yeah those guys are eloquent when when they talk about the situation that that they're facing and i know um that that um uh it's easy to discount the voice of a of an individual who has been convicted of a crime that none of us uh, feel comfortable with but uh if, if we're going to be a compassionate society, we have to pay attention to uh, um, the situation that, that that all of us face, and we 
we're sympathetic to individuals who are without, uh, who've lost their job. And so we provide uh, some support for them. Who have lost their home and we try to do what we can there. Who have um, um, uh, had, 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 had difficulty with their health. And, and uh, um, we have federal programs as well as state programs to support them. Here's a, a group of individuals who are, uh, who I believe, wish for, hope for, and would act, would, would work for um, uh, treatment and, and healing. And that's, uh, uh, and, and that's what's uh, so important. And, and of course, uh, prevention is, is a, is enormous thing. That's the, you know, that's where our attention should, that's where our priority should be. Amen to that. And, and education yeah. is a big part of prevention and, oh, and opportunity. Thank you for yeah. using GTL. Hello, Daniel. Hey. Say hi to Mr. Sandell. Yeah. How's it been? <laughs> oh, it's been great. He's still here. Yeah. I can't believe I can't believe he's hung out with me for an hour and twenty minutes. Actually longer than that even. <laughs> like, well, my, next appointment, my next appointment is with my grandson. So uh <laughs> well, and this is priority over everything, so well, Daniel, what's on your mind? Well, um, I'll tell you. I appreciate you having us on to talk about this. Um, the other day I saw a PBS program called Computer Versus Crime. I highly recommend it because it kind of paints a picture of the issue we're talking about here. Uh, in the program, they talk about pre-crime algorithms and preventive policing. And in big cities like Chicago and Atlanta, they use these algorithms to find hotspots uh, where they believe crime is going to be, and they try to determine uh, who's going to jump bail and things like that. And the program goes on to talk about how quickly this can get out of control. You know, we're starting to use computers to determine when crime is going to happen and who is going to commit the crime and who the victim will be. And it sounds like a you know noble thing, but it it can be, you know, it's usually um, racially biased. Uh, there's a lot of false, um, you know, convictions, things like that that can come out of this. And as I'm watching this, I'm thinking, I've been experiencing this. We are already seeing this currently. This isn't a future problem. There's 6,000 people in the United States confined right now because of pre-crime al uh, algorithms. We call them actuarial tools. And they're used to determine who's going to commit a sex crime. And if you fail these tools, you will be locked up for the rest of your life. And there's already 600, or excuse me, 6,000 people, innocent men, who are detained for this very purpose in the United States right now. And about 60% of the men detained here are homosexual or part of the LGBT community because the actuarial tool or algorithm that they use is the static 99R, which is explicitly and inherently homophobic. Now, I'm not, uh, you know, I don't support hom homosexual relationships. That's my own personal belief. But I also don't believe in locking people up because of their sexual orientation if they haven't committed any crime. So this is already a problem. So the, the PBS program kind of shocked me because they didn't cover that. And they're talking about uh, a problem in the future when really this has been going on for three decades in Minnesota and in 20 other jurisdictions. 
Well, the difference is they're relying on psychiatrists, not a computer, for the algorithm. Right. Yes. So the, right now, the well, the, the actuarial tools they use are a type of algorithm. They're just not computer algorithms. But they're they're on you know paper and pen. They're they're uh, questionnaires. You know that you fill out and if you fail it. And they talked about that being a form of algorithm, just kind of a, a crude version of what they were talking <laughs> about. You know, in the PBS. No. So it's the precursor to what they're talking about. It's already happening. So, um, you know, fortunately, there's institutions that are speaking out against this. You know, of course, Mr. Sandell has been a big help in getting the word out about this. Um, Harvard Law has spoken out against it. More recently, the Department of Justice um, has weighed in. But uh, did you get that email from Steve Winsett? Yep, I did. You want me to read it? This is pretty wild, actually. Where's your mom's email at? Oop, wrong email. It's this one. Okay. Yeah, the German court ruling. Um, let's see here. Wait, you want me to read the article or just the brief part? Uh, I was thinking just his email kind of up. Okay. So, uh, it's a bit early the morning when this side of the pond isn't it <laughs> if your focus is on involuntary civil commitment i wonder if you are familiar with these cases the first two in particular in sullivan versus the government of the united states a man fled to the uk after being charged with multiple sex offenses in minnesota the u.s sought his extradition he challenged extradition on the ground that if he were returned to the u.s he would face involuntary civil commitment at moose lake a process he alleged that violated his human rights. And those of you that are watching this or listening right now in the media kit that will be put, published on livemana.org, you'll be able to find this case. There's a link to it where you can read it for yourself. In Geese first government of the United States of America, a man fled to the UK after being charged with sex offenses in California. When the U.S. sought his extradition, he challenged the process by claiming if he were returned to the U.S., he would face involuntary civil commitment a process he says violates his human rights, because it does. Uh, there are several rulings concerning geese, as there are several appeals in addition to the original pleading. Interestingly, in Winsett versus Federal Republic of Germany, one of my grounds in favor of subsidiary protection was that if, I, if returned to Florida, I would face involuntary civil commitment again in violation of human rights. The issue before the courts, however, was whether these men faced real risk of having their human rights violated by the civilly committed. While the Sel Sullivan and Witset courts sidestep making a finding on whether involuntary civil commitment itself violates human rights law, the Geese court did make that finding. The finding in Geese was well-researched and well-explained by the court. In Sullivan and Geese, the courts ultimately permitted extradition after the U.S. government gave written assurances that involuntary civil commitment proceedings would not be initiated against these men. In Witsit, the court found that there was not a real risk that I would be civilly committed if returned to Florida, but granted subsidiary protection on other grounds. It is my opinion that by waiving any civil commitment proceedings against these men, the U.S. government was passively acknowledging that the civil commitment 
very likely would not survive a direct challenge on human rights grounds. I hope this small bit of information helps you. In truth, I have not looked at civil commitment. Okay, I don't think I need to read all that. So, do you, Daniel, do you want to tell them what the end result was that happened? is that in the Sullivan case, okay, Sean Sullivan was from Bloomington, Minnesota, and he was alleged to have committed sex crimes in Minnesota, so he fled to Germany. I know more about that case than the Geese case. He fled to, excuse me, he fled to England, not Germany. And the English court said, we, are, we do not believe he should be sent back because uh, the United States is in flagrant denial or in flagrant violation of Article 5 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which speaks against uh, pre-crime detention. So there's a very important distinction to understand here. The guy was charged with sex crimes and may or may not have done it. The issue is, can we lock him up before we convict him of a crime? And lock him up indefinitely for the rest of his life, just based on charges. And in many cases, even somebody that's been alleged to have committed a crime, not even charged by the local police department. Just the allegation alone can get somebody detained for life. Right. So the reason that they're targeting sex crimes is because the second I say sex offender or sex crime, people's brains shut off because they don't want to think about it. I understand that, but that is the propaganda. That is how it works. And I'm sure that there's listeners right now who understand what I'm saying they've experienced it during this conversation. We start talking about sex crimes and people don't want to hear it. But if it's an allegation, you're innocent until proven guilty, I don't care what the crime. And they're locking people up before they commit the crime. So back to the email. Whitsett is a similar situation. Uh, Stephen Whitsett, who wrote that email, he had fled to Germany. And the German court said, we don't really think he's going to be committed. But what we're concerned about is that, generally speaking, this is not a good place for somebody to have been alleged of a sex crime to, to be living in the United States. So he's now a, a German citizen. And there are a lot of, you know, this is a good time to bring this up. There's a, I highly recommend that the, the listeners uh, read the book, Shaving the Constitution. Uh, it's written by Michael L. Perlin and Heather Ellis Cucolo. And in Chapter 7, they break down why civil commitment is a violation of international laws. And it's a very interesting book breaks down um, how civil commitment works and what the problems are with it. Um, so now we have England and Germany saying that this is against international law. Um, and I kind of want to conclude with this. I, I had a few things to talk about, and I just covered most of them. Um, you know, I think it's great that these institutions are speaking up, but institutions are not more powerful than people. And if individual citizens don't start speaking up and saying something about this because they are at risk of being committed for an alleged crime that they have not been found guilty of. Everyone's at risk of this, not sex offenders, everybody. This is not for sex offenders, it's for citizens who get out of line. This is political prison. I'm sitting in a a political prisoner, sitting in a prison, and I'll be here the rest of my life unless this changes. When it changes. When it changes. Amen. Thank you for that. Um, uh, Joshua, I want to ask you if, you know, you allowing us to have this platform to speak about this and have a voice is extremely important. And I want to know if I want to donate to you, how do I do that? 
Oh, thank you for asking that. Uh, you can go to our website, livemana.org, L-I-V-E-M-A-N-A.org, and there is a donate tab. Okay. Thank you for asking. I'm doing that. I hope, I hope, yeah, I hope other people do too. You know, we got to support free speech institutions to keep this country free. It's so important. Uh, there's so much going on behind the scenes of our government, and it's our responsibility in a democracy to have a say and to have a, you know, a place in this government. We, we can't just let, you know, everything happen without our being a part of it. So that's why I think these things are really, really important. They are. Um, if, if people want to get connected to our, our network, um, we have a lot of, you know, we're gaining support on this. We're trying to educate people, help them understand it. They go to our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com forward slash ed. M-S-O-P-E-N-D-M-S-O-P. So, you know, we look forward to hearing from people and, um, you know, kind of let people know the details behind how this operates and what we can do to try to change it. Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff, man. Is that all you got? Man, I got a lot more. I know you do. Hey. Say, I want you to do, if you want to, give a shout out to whoever you want to say hi to. Oh, boy. Uh, you know what? My, my mother has been Mary's great. such a huge supporter for me. And I might choke up talking about this, but this woman is the most, the strongest person I've ever met. And she's, she's got a, a spirit about her that just screams justice and truth. And I think it's kind of embedded in the way she raised me. We've talked about this. She's never really explicitly um, said that these, these values are important. She just really lived it and demonstrated uh, what it means to stand up in the face of power despite the consequences. And she did receive consequences. And she, you know, she bounced back and said, I, you know, I stand on what I said. I stand on what I believe. And uh, let the chips fall where they may. And there's just nothing more powerful than that. I mean, that's what life's about. So my mother is just everything to me, you know, this whole thing. So I uh, love you, Mom, and thank you so much. That's that's awesome, man. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. It's good hearing your voice, and uh, we'll be in touch. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Thank you, and thanks, uh, Steve, for chiming in. Thanks, Daniel. Good to hear your voice, and we'll stay in touch. Minute remaining. See you later, brother. All right. See you later. Bye. Well, Joshua, I'm going to have to scoot too. Yeah. But, uh, I just want to say thanks, uh, as Daniel and Russell said, uh, um, for this for this forum um, and for the uh, the work you're doing and um, uh, the opportunity to talk to citizens who still have faith in democracy and, and want to do something about it. So uh, I, I hope we can talk again. Thank you. I hope so too, sir. God bless you. Thank you so much for your time, all of your time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. That just made it more feel more real to me. I mean, it's pretty real. Getting to speak with the family members, and of course, I talked to Daniel a lot, and Tom, and um, you know, just gosh, it was amazing. Just so many. Michael, Kansas, other gentleman, Roy, just interviewed. 
I mean, just normal people. Now, there's the other side too, and like my friend Tom, and I, he is my definitely my friend who was falsely accused. There was a victim of horrific psychological warfare, which all of these guys are, by the way, a victim of. Just seeing how that's affected him, and just put in the hole for a year at a time, and, and he was innocent. It's just, gosh, it's terrible. Um, I'm going to find you know what, this is what I want to do. I'm not going to read anything. I'm just going to say this. God can use anyone that's willing. I freeze? I think I freeze. 